Today we'll begin um, going through Acts chapter 4. We'll only go through the first 12 verses of Acts 4 today. Stand again. I should have decided to keep standing. And hear now the reading of his word in Acts chapter 4, 1 through 12. As they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple, the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and a number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, and set, set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power and by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. I pray that you would bless this congregation today by the reading and the hearing and the preaching of your word that we would have the power of the name of Jesus Christ transform our life, that the Holy Spirit would be bestowed upon us in such a way that the words that we speak in proclamation of you would again be consistent with the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Help us, Father, to not be greatly annoyed by the proclamation of the resurrection. Help us not to be greatly annoyed when the power and the authority in the name of Jesus thwarts our plans, thwarts our hopes of this earthly world. But may it be that we would see the great joy and grace it is that we are called by the name of Jesus. May that power penetrate every element of our life as individuals walking with you, as families, as brothers and sisters in Christ, and as we proclaim your gospel to this community, may it be that you would empower our words by the Holy Spirit to speak truth, the repentance of sins, and the forgiveness and salvation of you. We pray this, Father, in your Son's name. Amen. You may be seated. Here we have the continuation of the foundation of the church, the proclamation of the name of Jesus Christ.
These circumstances that the disciples found themselves in are necessary for us to understand the nature of what God has done for the church, who Jesus Christ is in the church, and how we are to posture ourselves before the proclamation of the name of Jesus Christ. This is a tremendous event in history. It is an amazing event that if we could even capture it in some kind of film, it would have to be days long. But for us, we have been given the word of God and the power of his spirit to read these things now so that we would be a a participant in this great event that happened 2,000 years ago. Here we have the disciples proclaiming to the people And then we have the typical response that we've seen throughout all of the gospel. Religious and political leaders clashing with the proclamation of Jesus Christ. We see that today. We continue to see the church, other religions, and the government, presidents, governors, senators, kings, queens throughout the world grappling with the reality that Jesus Christ is the King of Kings. We know those kind of things. We know that these are grand spectacles that have been displayed here in this Word and is being displayed before us every day we turn on the news as we look at how people submit to false doctrine over the truth of Jesus Christ. But I hope that today, that as I often hope and as I believe the Word of God requires of us, that we would not let these things be such grand spectacles far removed from our daily activities, far removed from our typical emotions and thoughts that are occurring right now and continually in our life. I believe that these words are very much to reiterate to us that God's authority, that Jesus Christ's authority is over all things, and that, in, that includes every minute and action and thought that we experience throughout the day. And the realities of the things that are proclaimed here in this passage, I think, are very much at home with us because we are people who get annoyed. I love this word, annoyed, is how it was translated here in this passage. It's not just to have, in some cases, it's distressed or disturbed. But I love how the ESV here has used the word annoyed. It gives you a different sense when you talk about, you're being annoying. (laughs) Or I feel annoyed. Interestingly enough, it's only twice that this particular Greek word is used. It's used here in the earlier part of Acts. And we'll encounter it again later on in Acts in a whole different context. And I'll share more with you about that later on. But the high priest, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees were greatly annoyed. What kind of things annoy you the most? I'm not asking you to start putting out names in front of everyone. (laughs) That's why I didn't say who. Because I was afraid you might end up to start saying things. Just think in your heart and your mind, what are the things that annoy you most? Can you imagine if being annoying was an Olympic sport? Or being annoyed was even a competition? See, you, what's easier for you? Are you one that being annoying is easy for you to other people? 
or becoming annoyed. We all can think of people, and we may even recognize it in ourselves, that we could be very annoying to people. Or other people could be annoying, but we can also see that we might be easy to be annoyed. Does it, do you get annoyed quickly by things? There are probably different seasons and times where you realize that you could be annoyed by things that you wouldn't be in other times. This week, Dave and I were talking about times when we respond to circumstances or people with annoyance. It can be a major issue. I think he and I both crossed paths at a good time when we both were dealing with annoyance and responding to that annoyance. Not so good. And how we become short and snippy with people. We talked about the likely culprits of our heart conditions that would invoke such quick and painful annoyance. We know that there is an underlying cause. It's not just what we said, but why are we saying it? Why do we feel this way? Hopefully in our maturity in life and our walk with Jesus Christ, we can start recognizing why we get annoyed so quickly. It's interesting to consider what really problems are there in our heart. We considered whether our annoyance was due to just a sinful heart condition that we're not dealing with, or maybe it's tiredness or anxiety or a lack of compassion or a lack of just simply trusting God and his providence in our lives. Here in the beginning of chapter 4 of Acts, we see the religious leaders, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees being greatly annoyed at the disciples' teaching and proclamation in the name of Jesus, the resurrection of the dead. They were greatly annoyed. There's an emphasis there that it was just overwhelming to them to the point of how they were disturbed and distressed. The word annoyed comes from the Latin meaning loathsome hatred. Now, I would hope that every time that we are annoyed by something that we don't truly experience the fullness of a loathsome, loathsome <laughs> hatred toward an individual. But I think we, at that time, we do have a hatred at least to the circumstance or the particular actions. And then sometimes it is indicative to what we feel about the person or at least a frustration that we have. And here we have this interesting word, and that they have this frustration with what's going on. I hope that in time that the Lord is causing all of us to learn how to deal with that and to become more like Jesus and not responding with annoyance. But why? Why were they so greatly annoyed at the preaching of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of those who believe and trust in him. Wasn't this good news? Wouldn't it be considered that one of the greatest hopes that any of us would have, no matter what your background or religion is, that there is some kind of hope and purpose in life after death? Wouldn't the greatest sadness be that there would be nothing left after we die, that we just basically fade away, that it's all for naught? Why would they be so upset that Peter and the other disciples are proclaiming that you'll live if you trust in Jesus? That Jesus conquered over sin and death? 
that the penalty for our sin and wickedness was placed on someone else. That because of that, in belief in Him, we enjoy something other than wrath. Why would that be annoying? This obviously was, obviously was not the primary problem. It wasn't, it couldn't be just resurrection. Not everyone responded to what was being preached with this loathsome hatred. They didn't have this annoyance. We see that 5,000 households believed the good news that was being preached to them. This was amazing news. We can see that it is earth shattering and things are happening here where people are going toward it as if it's good news. But we see here that there are some people that should be those who are embracing this because they have the law and the prophets. They have all of the promises and proclamations of this Messiah that would come. This would have been a hope for any of those who are in his word faithfully that they would celebrate this great proclamation of the good news. They were going to use every power and every authority that they had at their disposal to cease this proclamation from occurring. They have here, you see here, as you would have seen in the gospel, they have the captain of the temple. If you don't know who that is, that's basically a a police officer for the temple. It's a sergeant of arms. It's someone who has the ability not to just yell at somebody or to be upset and annoyed, but to actually put the sword to the annoyance. This particular captain of the temple is likely the same ones or at least a participant of the same ones of those who arrested Jesus Christ when he was brought forth for crucifixion. They were ready for this to end. This proclamation of the gospel was infringing upon something. As you know yourself, whenever you get greatly annoyed, it is typically because something that you intended, whether it's a moment of peace or a particular thing that you're trying to do or an event that you're wanting to go to or whatever, it's a roadblock. Sometimes you get annoyed with people because you would prefer them to act a different way or respond a different way. That they would be shaped more in some way that gives you greater personal peace. Well, Jesus told us before that the Sadducees at least couldn't get why this was such good news when we read in Matthew 22. Jesus explains that they don't know the scripture and the power of God. This was an account where they were trying to trip up Jesus by coming to him. This is the Sadducees, and they were coming to Jesus, and they said, okay, we got this scenario, this fictional scenario for you, Jesus, about a woman who ended up marrying seven brothers, one at a time, and as they each died, she married the next one. So in the afterlife, if there there is resurrection, is how the Sadducees would have said it before Jesus, If there is resurrection of the dead, who is she married to? Who's going to be her husband when she's married seven different men here in this life, and then they all die? Who is she going to be married to? And he said, 
You don't get it. You don't know the Scriptures. You don't know the Scriptures about resurrection because if you would have read, it says that God is the father of Abraham and of Moses and of Jacob and Isaac because God is the God of the living. So if you would have read your Scriptures, you wouldn't be questioning me like this about the resurrection. Because you don't understand that we're not going to be married in heaven and given to marriage in heaven, that we are going to be like angels. I still don't know what that means. (laughs) To what degree that we are going to be like angels. It is a great mystery to me. And we can read different passages of Scripture, even Paul in talking about how what it's like to be away from the body. We can formulate a vague understanding of what goes on after we die and how there's the soul and then there's the body and the resurrection of the body and there's all kinds of different conclusions about what's going to happen but we know that God is the God of the living that is we can't question that the scriptures both old and new testament proclaim the resurrection of the dead there is no doubt for those who know the word of God and who know the power of God. Jesus says you don't know the Scriptures and you don't know the power of God. Your absence of both of those. What is it that it means that they are absent this power of God? Surely if we read the Scriptures, we can see that it teaches about the resurrection. But they couldn't see it, and they are those who had read the Scriptures. Well, of course, they had it all wrong. And Jesus pointed out that their conclusions were based upon something that was going on in their heart. The religious leaders of Acts 4 did not accept the truth of God's word and the awesome power of God. They're the same people. They're dealing with the same thing. That he is a living God of living people even people who are dead and obviously are now living. This doesn't just have a bearing on how we anticipate life to come, but it has implications on how we see life now. In light of what is to come, in light of what has come to make it so, what are we now? How are we to live our life now? How are we to be perceiving the things that are occurring in our life now that the resurrection has been secured by the, the work of Jesus Christ. Although this should teach us a lot about how we should view our marriages today, and it should conjure up some at least some curiosity about what it means to be angels in heaven, the main point of Jesus' response is this kind of hope only comes from understanding and being postured by the transformation of God's word and God's power and spirit, the spirit of God Almighty. They were still stuck in their ignorance of unbelief. That is why there were 5,000 other men who were able to believe, but they could not. They were still hard of hearts. They were uncut of heart. The truth was clearly being proclaimed before them that even today that most people 
generally have this hope that they're actually arguing something that makes absolutely no sense, that all is vain after that we're dead. Most people have a general sense that something greater is going on, even people who don't believe in Jesus Christ. Their lack of faith in their hearts and being cut to the heart was actually causing them to argue a philosophy that went against all sensible reasonability. Who are these people? They took them from this group to greater authority. They took these disciples to the upper authority of the leaders. The high priest Annas and Caiaphas, which they take turns. They're actually related to each other. These were the same guys who were a part of the crucifixion conspiracy against Jesus. And it's good if we were actually doing a movie now, it would be good to kind of have a little squirrely blur and go to a flashback and look at what's going on here, that now we have Peter and the disciples standing before the same people that were there the very night that Jesus was crucified. And you find this more clearly explained in John chapter 18. Verses 12 through 28. It says, So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus. Again, this captain was probably the same one, the captain of the temple. And they bound him. First they led them to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. And it was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Again, not on behalf of their sins, but to take care of the situation here. It would be good for this guy to die so they can continue on in their endeavors. But it was ironic, the words that he used. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did the other disciple, who would be John. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of the men's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who heard me and what I said to them. They know what I said. And when he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, Is that how you answer the high priest?" Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of the disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, the relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you at the garden with him? Peter again denied it. And at once the rooster crowed. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. 
It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters, so they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. These are the same people, both sides. You have Peter, who denied Jesus three times in that moment. He was there, along with John the disciple. And we have Caiaphas and Annas. We have these other two who are named John and Alexander. Not sure exactly where they are. There's very little known about these other two, the, the other priestly person named John and Alexander. But likely they were part of the high priestly family of guys that were there at that moment. These are people who had already questioned Jesus. They knew where he was going with what he was saying. They didn't know in the sense of being enlightened to the truth about Jesus and the fullness of belief. But they were there, and here they have again the very disciples, the disciples who were true and the disciple who denied are now standing and proclaiming again this resurrection in the name of Jesus Christ. It would have been an interesting time to have this reunion after all that they experienced. You've got to remember, these are the guys that paid off the guards. When the guards came and said, it's empty, <laughs> The tomb is empty. He's not there. These guys had all of the information. They had the word of God. They had probably the best evidence that there is. They had eyewitnesses who saw Jesus put in the tomb and then come and said, we don't know what's going on, but he's not there. And they're the ones who gave the money to them so they would lie that the disciples had stolen the body. What is going on here? Why are they not in delight and in celebration of what they're hearing being done? Surely they're seeing the effects of what Jesus' work is doing. They're standing there right now because of this man who was crippled all of his life, was able to walk. They even see him standing there, and we'll see in other accounts, they're like, we can't really argue with what they're doing, just like they couldn't argue with the empty tomb, but they're still trying to squash this proclamation. So much that they are so annoyed at what is going on. Why would they be disturbed at this? Would they not want the same hope Would they not want the same hope that their lives would not just perish and the purposes of their lives would just perish at their death? The offense is not so much the reality of the resurrection, but it is in whose power the resurrection exists. So if you look at what they're asking when they are talking to Jesus and when they're talking to the disciples, they keep saying, who's name whose power are you proclaiming it's not an issue of people getting healed it's not an issue of people being raised from the dead they're past that they've already talked to the guards who saw the empty tomb they want to know who they are proclaiming because what they're really upset with is the authority of jesus christ They are upset that a different authority other than their own is being proclaimed to the people. 
It is the in Jesus part of verse 2 of this chapter that offends them, not the resurrection part. The resurrection is the evidence and the proof that the in the name of Jesus actually has weight. That is why they asked the disciples, by what power and by what name do you do this? They are absent of being approving of the authority of Jesus Christ because it is conflicting with their own personal authority. They cannot and will not surrender to this because they are absent the power of God. They do not know Jesus because they do not know the Holy Spirit and the power of God. Then in Acts 8, it says, Then Peter... Filled four eight, excuse me, Acts four eight. It says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and the elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to you all and all of the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, and has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no name, no authority, under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. He just punches right back with the same thing that they're upset with. The thing that is annoying them is not the resurrection. They're not annoyed by a man being healed. They're just annoyed that they keep showing up with this evidence that the name of Jesus Christ, the authority of Jesus Christ, is the only thing, the only thing that we can have hope in. It is a battle of kingdoms. Their kingdom versus the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And it is exactly the same battle that rages in your own heart. That rages in my own heart. Every single time that you get annoyed, there's only two reasons. And it has to do with which kingdom is promoting that annoyance. You have in the beginning here of Acts where it's clear they are annoyed at the authority of Jesus. Later on, we will deal with an account where Paul is going through and he's proclaiming the same message, the same gospel. And he encounters a slave girl that is being used to prophesy or to to, to tell people the future. And the people are making money off of the slave girl who is full of demons and that particular slave girl is going around and saying that these guys are of the, the most high God. Now you would think, well, that sounds good. Even the demons know. But Paul becomes so greatly annoyed, it says. Same exact wording than here. The only other time Paul gets so annoyed that he releases the girl from the demons and frees her. Now, it's an interesting account. You're kind of thinking, why did it go so many days? Why didn't he just do it? I don't know. And there's nothing in the scriptures that tell us why it took so long. Other than the point that he was greatly annoyed. And what was he greatly annoyed by? He was greatly annoyed, one, by the captivity of this girl to the power of Satan. 
Whenever anything has taken over, anything of the kingdom of hell has taken over any of us, it should annoy us. And then there was the proclamation of God's name in a mocking way. In a way that was not consistent with the promotion of and the power of the, of the power of the Holy Spirit. It was just an acknowledgement. The demons know who Jesus is. And so here was one actually proclaiming truth, saying things that are consistent with truth, but not of the Holy Spirit. And in a way that is captivating someone's life to destruction and sinful profit. So Paul was greatly annoyed that someone was given to sin, given to wickedness, given to the power of the devil, and not the power of the Holy Spirit. So ask yourself, when you are greatly annoyed in your life, and sometimes you will see, as Dave and I were discussing amongst our own life and our own frustration, that you have a lot of times of annoyance where you're kind of in this season of being tensed up why are you like that are you annoyed because someone is in captivity to darkness and sin are you annoyed because someone is just continued in going a path that is in a place of destruction and hopelessness in proclaiming in a way God's name that is bringing about confusion and destruction that's a reasonable reason to be annoyed. We should bring that annoyance before the Lord and say, it is, Lord, this one is captive. Will you not release them by the power of your son's defeat of death by the resurrection? Will you not free this one? By the power and the authority of Jesus, will you not Release this one. That is what Paul did. He said, in the name of Jesus, be gone. Or are you annoyed like the Sadducees and the Pharisees? Most of us don't get annoyed at the idea that we have hope in Jesus to have eternal life. When we see God do things in our life, we're not annoyed by the fact that he answers our prayers. I'm so thankful for Mary reminding us in our prayer time today to thank him for all of the answered prayers that he has shown us. He does it all the time. We are constantly saying, Lord, do this, please do this, please do this. And we very little come back and say, thank you for doing this and thank you for doing that. We just kind of live in it and we're fine with it, but then we go on in our life being annoyed, greatly annoyed, in constant conflict with distress in not liking the way things are going, not liking, not knowing how things are going to go. We are in conflict then, I believe, with the kingdom of Jesus Christ. But Paul, excuse me, Peter tells us here that this, this name of Jesus, this name of Jesus is full of power and full of hope and full of authority. So here's the thing. And, and Peter's trying to show it here. He says, you see this one that has been healed. You hear the proclamation of resurrection. And, and this is not what you're focused on. But look at this. Because this thing here 
only happens by the authority of Jesus Christ. And what that is teaching us is that your only hope in life, whatever it is that you think that you're grasping at in life, if there's any goodness in it, and there's any faithful in it, faithfulness in it, it is only due to the authority and the power of Jesus Christ. And so when we encounter those moments, when things aren't going our way or the way that we would prefer them to go, or if there is difficulty or trial or persecution or peril, do we trust that Jesus has authority over all things? Do we trust that he has power over sin and death? Are we captive to a philosophy or a thought or a reaction or an emotion that is consistent with these high priests and Sadducees that essentially our life and our frustration is consistent as if the resurrection does not even exist? Does the resurrection give you hope that you have a life in the name of Jesus Christ that everything that is occurring from this moment on is under the power and the authority of Jesus Christ? Or are you fighting that kingdom by bringing your frustrations of God that he's not acting like a servant in your kingdom? That he's not doing the things the way you intended it? Or you may even say, like I do often, Lord, I thought you wanted this done, but you're not obviously helping me get it done which is kind of accusing him with a double whammy. It's like, you wanted what I wanted, right? (laughs) Why aren't you doing what I wanted? I mean, what you wanted. I'm sorry, did I say it that way? (laughs) The slip of the tongue and the slip of the heart that we're ultimately wanting God to be our servant. We're wanting Jesus to be serving in our kingdom. And we get annoyed when he and others don't match up with that. That's exactly the same sin that was occurring here with these You know, here, this particular last verse, it says, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. I thought about going down a a route or a rabbit hole on universalism, but I started thinking about it. You know, universalism is basically a false religion and philosophy that is based upon we want to be able to do whatever we want and go to heaven. I mean, that's basically what universalism is. Saying, everyone's going to get in eventually. It doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't matter what you do or what religion you practice. Eventually, you're going to get to go to heaven because God is so good and he wouldn't send anyone to hell. It's basically the same thing. It's trying to make a a religion out of the idea that we want to have all authority and that everybody can. You can all be God. You can all be your own king. You can be your own authority and you can get away with it. You can actually go against the kingdom of Jesus and he's going to be so nice to you in the end of the day. That is not consistent with the scriptures. I'm going to end here with one of the guys here that's named John. One of the legends, I guess you could say, or not just the legends, but one of the assumptions or potentials is that this particular high priest, John, was known eventually later on, even after this event, as Yochan ben Zakari. He was a, a priest in the Jewish religion that actually did other writings and there's other accounts about him. They're thinking that it's very likely that it is the same guy. And there's an account about him that's 
in current today in the Jewish writings, in the Jewish history, that he was sick one time. I really don't know what happened to him. He doesn't, in any of the writings I have, I don't know if he died or not, but he was sick. And his students came to him, and they visited him. And when he saw them, he started to cry. And his students said to him, Lamp of Israel, right hand pillar, mighty hammer. I'm trying to act like I'm Jewish or something. I don't know if that's working or not. Why are you crying? He said to them, If I was brought before a king of flesh and blood, who is here today and in the grave tomorrow, if he became angry with me, his anger is not eternal. If he imprisons me, it is not eternal imprisonment. If he kills me, it is not a permanent death. And I could appease him with words or bribe him with money. Even so, I would still cry. But now that I am brought before the King of Kings, the Holy One, blessed be he, who lives for all eternity, if he becomes angry with me, it is an eternal anger. If he imprisons me, it is an eternal imprisonment. imprisonment. If he kills me, it is a permanent death. And I cannot appease him with words or bribe him with money. And not only that, but I have two roads before me, one to Gan Eden and one to Gan Hinnom, basically heaven and hell. And I do not know which one they will take me. Should I not cry? Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, Do not fear those who kill the body, but can kill the soul. Rather fear him who could destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs on your head are numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father who is heaven, who in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Paul tells us that if there is no resurrection, we are the most pitiful people. We are most to be pitied. Here we are with all of this teaching and all the things that we do. If there is no resurrection, there is no power in the name of Jesus Christ. That is not why we are here this day. It says in 1 Peter chapter 2, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, just like Peter said here in his sermon before the high priest, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and the stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim 
the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. For those of you who trust in the authority and the power of Jesus Christ, the hope of resurrection is for you. The hope of life here in this day is for you. We have no reason to be greatly annoyed when our kingdoms are crushed because we should not want our kingdoms to have another moment of any deceived idea that there is any goodness in them. But when we submit to the king, when we submit to his authority, when we obey his word, that is hope. Because we're hoping not in our obedience to it, but we are hoping in the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let us pray.